Sparring and spending amid the final push for the gubernatorial campaign. This is the week of July 30th. Welcome to Grand Divisions. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter. The early voting period is over. Election day is Thursday. And gubernatorial candidates, specifically on the Republican side, are making their last big effort to convince voters that they should come over to their camp. Yeah, so far we've seen, obviously, a, a very tight race on the Republican side. Uh, Bill Lee, Diane Black, Beth Harwell, and Randy Boyd are all trying to make their final pitches. Uh, they've taken to the airwaves. They've been blanketing television stations throughout the state to make their case as to why they're the, the, the best candidate for the nomination. We've tried to blanket our own website with lots of stories about any sort of issue, both political and policy issues, and also kind of the campaign back and forth. Please go check them out at Tennessean.com. Uh, we've had stories recently. Joel took a look at all of the candidates, Republican candidate stance on opioids. Can you give us just a quick preview or review of that? Yeah, essentially all the candidates acknowledge that this is going to be a significant issue the next governor has to face, but you've got a variety of different answers on A, how to handle it, and B, just their own views. You've got uh, Diane Black expressing uh, skepticism about making a, a drug, uh, overdose reversal drug, naloxone, available in places like dorms. You've got Randy Boyd saying things like uh, Tylenol can often be prescribed for uh, some issues that doctors may have given prescriptions for. So it's all in this story. It's not a comprehensive story by any means of every single position that the candidates have in terms of opioids, but it gives you a different flavor of where they stand on the issue. That's right. And then uh, I, I guess we, we, we've had a couple other stories that are kind of more about things in candidates' past that have been pointed out and maybe a little criticism for those candidates. There's one about an organization that was created by the, the Black family uh, that kind of rates businesses. It looks at uh, their their standing and perhaps more importantly, if they contribute money to causes deemed to be too liberal by this by this organization. Yeah. And it's it's led some to wonder as the black administration were to take office, would they then take their conservative leanings and apply that to uh, some of these companies that are, are huge uh, in Tennessee, HCA, Volkswagen, FedEx, and, and FedEx. And, and if they're not following our conservative beliefs, uh, would they be punished in some sort of way? So we have a story about that again on the Tennessee and Knoxville News Sentinel commercial appeal, all of our USA Today network property. The candidates, the candidates don't necessarily want you to see those stories. They want you to see their message. They're spending millions of dollars to get their message out. We 51 just 51 million to be exact. That's yeah. right. We yeah. just got out the latest campaign finance reports. Governor's race has officially passed 50, 50 $50 million. That's Democrats and Republicans spending. Yep. Joel, do you think that these these last minute ads can kind of push somebody either out of somebody's camp to another camp or or help somebody who's still undecided somehow to, to move over to a campaign? Well, I, I mean, I think at this point, people probably have a decision. Uh, if they haven't decided right now, I don't know that it's going to be a 30 second ad that's going to sway you. It may be uh, who's asking me to vote for them outside the polling station. Is it, you know, does somebody have a really good ground game, final ground game? Right now, all the ads that we've seen that with limited exceptions have been reruns. We've already seen most of them before. Uh, Bill Lee has come out with a couple of new ads in the close. So is Beth Harwell. But for the most part, 
part, um, we've we've taken a page back from the negative ads and just gone positive, which makes sense. I sure, guess, sure, exactly. And and that that would 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 seem to indicate, you know, if you're on the fence between a couple of candidates, you're a little frustrated about what they're doing there. That that uh, if you see a positive ad, you remember why you like that candidate in the first place, sure. and that campaign hopefully thinks that you'll, if you're a little bit up in the air, kind of come home to where they hoped you'd be in the first place. Yeah, I think that's accurate. All right, so we've got Jordan Bowie here with us, our colleague here at the Tennessean. Uh, we're going to have a, a quick conversation about a recent story that he wrote where essentially a, an old lawsuit was brought up in the midst of this uh, gubernatorial election uh, related to Bill Lee's campaign. Jordan, what were the, the, the findings that you had? Well, uh, this is something that Diane Black's campaign has brought up at least last week, possibly before, on a website that her campaign has created, uh, BillLeeFactCheck.com. They bring up a 10-year-old lawsuit in which uh, a veteran accused the company of wrongful termination. This eventually ended up going to a settlement in which we don't know the details of it, which is neither a, an admission of guilt on the side of the Lee company or, you know, saying that he's totally innocent there. We don't know. But this is something she's brought back into the light to kind of bring into the conversation. She didn't just create a website either, though. It sounds like she also did mailers on this issue. Is that right? Well, this uh, this came out there. We put this uh, story out there on this last week. And then shortly after this, a day later, uh, we hear about a cease and desist letter from Lee company sent to the black campaign regarding mailers she sent out. In these mailers, she references back to this website uh, that originally had a post about this lawsuit where she says Bill Lee doesn't support uh, veterans, Tennessee veterans. Mm. She also says in there that uh, Bill Lee, the Lee company fired an employee that was while he was deployed in Iraq. And in the lawsuit in particular, it says that the employee was actually hired back to the company and then released later. So there is some questionable aspects of that. But essentially, the company wrote to the black campaign saying that this is false information that they don't agree with this and that they support veterans and also that this is damaging to the company. And eventually they had to, the, the black campaign had to take the information changed off the, the website, website, right? Yeah. They changed the website. Yeah. Yeah. The website was changed when we checked back on there. The response from the black campaign was that they regularly changed the website and this was nothing different. This so, was a brand new website. I mean, this is, this is politics 101 here, right? Sure. Like this is a campaign taking something that they think they can, they a found an inch on. Shot, yeah. yeah. And they take a shot. They go a little too far, potentially the, intended target fights back but at the same time somebody out there somewhere might have this idea in their head now maybe bill lee doesn't support our veterans which as as the lawsuit notes and as the lee campaign notes is absolutely a, a stretch of the truth yeah but it man. muddies the water that's what it wants to do well that's exactly and this is also another sign right that that bill lee might be surging in the polls our guests this week are two very bright political analysts one republican one democrat uh we talk about the final stages of the race uh, who can can pull ahead, uh, take a quick look ahead to the general. We also reference a couple of stories uh, that you might not have seen. So I want to give you a little bit of background. The New York Times recently reported about Governor Bill Haslam and statements he made at a, a National Governors Association event in New Mexico about whether the White House should kind of wade in to a, a hotly contested Republican primary. He essentially said, no, thanks. You shouldn't really wade into it. Let's just let our own state duke it out. Uh, so we talk about that a little bit. And this was recorded before Vice President uh, Mike Pence decided to actually weigh in to the race. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Trying something a little bit different today on Grand Divisions. We're going to have a, a voice from the left and a voice from the right kind of get us ready for election night coming around the corner very soon. 
Uh, on the left, we have Kaylee Kreider. She's a former advisor and communications director for Vice President Al Gore, and she is currently leading her own consulting firm, Kreider Strategies. Kaylee, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. On the right, we have Michael Sullivan. He's the executive director of the Tennessee Republican Party. Michael, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you guys having me. All right, so we are days out from the actual primary election. Early voting's already started. Is there anybody that hasn't made up their mind yet? Is there anybody that's still just sitting around and saying, I have no idea who to vote for? I think there's probably a lot of folks out there like that. Uh, you know, what's pretty amazing is when you look at some of the early vote trends in Tennessee, we've always somewhat become a 50-50 early vote state, but there's an exception. It was a 2016 presidential preference primary where only 30% of the vote was early vote. Uh, and, and I think we're seeing that somewhat happen in this gubernatorial primary. Uh, we've seen strong early vote numbers, but there's still this kind of uncertainty out there. And I think we're going to see early vote numbers be under 50% for this uh, primary. I actually agree. You know, if you look at Republicans, self-identified Republicans, it's remained pretty stable since 2002, but self-identified Democrats have actually dropped and become more independent. And so I think you have, and that means you've got some folks out there who aren't sure, A, which primary they're going to vote in, and then B, who they're going to vote for. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That the independent part. There's that that first question of which primary do I vote in? As early voting continues, we've seen new polling come out. Some have said, you know, Bill Lee is up. Uh, what impact do polls have as people are either in the process of early voting or just about to go vote on the August primary? I mean, does that does that form somebody's decision? You know, do they see a poll and say, oh, maybe I should vote for the potential winner? I think for that, maybe that's that part of the electorate that thinks I don't want this candidate, mm. that maybe their their vote is against somebody and less for somebody. Uh, and maybe they, they have a preference when you have a multiple candidate primary like this. And there, there may be a candidate they're like, I do not want, you know, candidate A. And then they look at candidate B and C and decide or D and decide which one has the most best chance of winning. But that's not a, a very significant part of the electorate. Also, I think there have been some interesting little tricks, right? Like a certain candidate saying, I'm surging, and they may have surged off of a lower base. Um, you've also seen a couple of issues make a difference. Um, you know, if a candidate says, oh, I'm going to, you know, do lanes, not trains, but that matters a lot in rural Tennessee. So I've literally seen that make a difference in the outer ring counties uh, because People don't necessarily want 840 in their backyard. Um, so I've seen signs go up related to that. Um, and then, of course, you know, these attack ads make a difference around the margins. Uh, and so you're, you're kind of seeing people try to make some decisions um, around these kinds of issues. And then on the Democratic side, you know, we see one candidate who's just started running ads for the very first time. <laughs> and a lot of people uh, don't even know him. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, literally, very, very low name ID. R referring to Craig Fitzhugh. Referring to yeah. Craig Fitzhugh. You know, um, he said the other day, I went to an event and someone, you know, knew who I was. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, when you come off of low name ID like that, right, it's, it just says It seems low. a little late in the game for that to happen, right? Like, I've, we've seen endorsements coming in for him, and, and he is running ads now, but it's, you know, kind of days out when, when Carl Dean, former national mayor, has been running ads for, for months now. Yeah. So, Michael, can you talk to us a little bit? Uh, you talk about this contested primary Obviously, the ads have turned a little bit. How does the party unify afterward or does it? And like, how much time does it take? It can't happen overnight, right? Well, you know, I think when you look at the candidates, they all probably have a lot more in common than they have 
different from each other. Uh, and then when you're running a competitive race like this, it, you strategically, you've got to look at it and you can't just say like, oh yeah, well, you know, we all agree on these issues. You have to point out how you differentiate from the other candidates. And so that's why you see these negative ads and, you know, the, you know, so-and-so is for this and I'm against it and, and, and however they want to frame it. Uh, but at the end of the day, we recognize that we're a party that, you know, generally agrees and these candidates all generally agree on a lot of the most important issues. And you've seen it in a lot of their, their original ads, the, the initial ads that came out of, you know, a fiscally responsible state, economic development, continuing the improvement on education, continuing to keep low unemployment. And at the end of the day, yeah, you know, I, I think that our party is still going to be very unified going into November because we generally agree on a lot of the major issues. It's just these candidates are trying very hard to differentiate themselves. Kaylee, do you not, though, see the, the Democrat, whichever Democrat comes out of the primary, trying to exploit that disunity, trying to play into and try to peel off some of those independents? Maybe they used to be self-identified Democrats. They're independents now and kind of play into this is the party of bickering and that they're fighting and that we have this unified front going forward. Does that, is that like a strategy that can work? Sure. So Democrats had this problem years ago when Democrats were in control of everything and then they fell into bickering with one another. And ultimately, right, there is a question of whether it hurts the overall brand. Um, you know, that said, there's an old line about Republicans that they don't fall in love, they fall in line. So, <laughs> you know, there's always the question of whether that they will kind of come together in the end. And I mean, that's the question, right? Is that, is that, is that balance? I'll say this, you know, um, Mayor Dean, who I think many anticipate will come through this primary because he's always demonstrated that he will uh, do what it takes to win in terms of, uh, and we saw that when he ran for mayor, he's going to come out of this primary if he indeed wins, you know, ready to roll in the general. As far as that, though, if he becomes the nominee for the Democrats, do progressives rally around him? I mean, you definitely see uh, the progressive end of folks that are gravitating more towards Fitzhugh, but will they come out and support Dean? Well, look, I'm an adult survivor from this uh, this experience having worked for Al Gore, but I'll say that I would anticipate, given the option that they might have on the other side, that they would. I think the big question in Tennessee is going to be those independent Democrats and who comes out on the Republican side. And But where do those independent Democrats go? So uh, this is this question for both of you, just as people who have who've watched this campaign and been pretty close to it. Has there been any sort of either strategy or advertising or policy position from a candidate on the other side that has either, that has stood out to you as either like, wow, that's a really great idea or that's an impressive tactic. Is there anything like that that's jumped out for you? for So from Michael for a Democrat and Kaylee from a Republican. I, I think the, the real issue in that question and being able to kind of make have a, a good answer is they're all very introductory 30 seconds TV spots. That's what the primary exposure, especially someone like me with a very like strong Republican primary vote history. I'm not getting mail pieces. I'm not getting phone calls. I, I see the TV ad every once in a while. And it's a very general 30 second ad. And then being a, a politico, I dissected of like, oh, well, that's a bad voiceover. Or, oh, I can't believe you <laughs> use that shot. Or, oh, he's in the same tie in every single shot. <laughs> so unfortunately, yeah. you know, that's how I view a lot of these political commercials. So, it, you know, they're really, I can't honestly say no. Everything that Carl Dean or Craig Pitchew has said is bad and I'm totally against it. But I also can't say that, oh, there's definitely something in there that, oh, it's great. Because they're just, they're gloss over 30 second 
hey, I'm a good guy, vote for me type ads. Kaylee, did you have like a, a favorite ad of a Republican? And I, I mean, I'll tell you mine. I think the most hilarious ad this year was with Beth Harwell's where she is, you know, not even a question. Yep. Yep. <laughs> she is equating her opponents as, as children. And, 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 you know, she's trying to show herself as the adult in the room, which you can make an argument that she is in a, in a primary where there's a lot of infighting, but has there been a favorite for you or? Yeah. So, so I, on the, on the democratic side, I would just say Carl Dean's just introducing himself, right? He's like, thank God I don't have a tough primary. That's what I take <laughs> home from the democratic side. And, and his forgotten Tennessee ad, I, I think it's, it's a, it's, it's a well done ad. Yeah. Huh. On the Republican side. So, and, and let me just say, I actually personally like the Republicans who are in the race. So I just want to put that out there. <laughs> I, I actually travel with some of them to, to DC. So my Diane Black has clearly tried to position herself as the most conservative in the race, but I don't think she really, her best ad was clearly the nurse ad. Would agree. Tough. Um, Which one was that? Where, where she introduced herself as the hard scrabble mm-hmm. pulled okay. up from the bootstraps. I'm the nurse. It was a long time ago. And I think people like have forgotten it. Trump yeah. Where Trump like is at the, the beginning of it. Yeah. yeah. And she yeah. walks out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yes. I yeah. Don't remember. Um, uh, and then, and then, you know, I think really the other two, they've gotten confused with each other. Um, they, they're both like the outsider businessman. And I think really, um, Bill Lee is kind of like the best looking of the two. So you're like, I'm Bill Lee and I'm good looking, right? That's what I take home as a woman. And I think for his opponent, right? I think he, he, if he could would say like, if you liked Bill Haslam, you'll love me. And that's what I take home from those ads. And I think part of the reason there's been a confusion between the two men in the race is they both wanted to run as the outsider businessman. Mm. Um, I personally love Bill Lee's, uh, orange signature bumper sticker. It's really well designed. Um, uh, I just think Bill Lee has come up late. Um, you know, I, th- I think that's, the, you know, he's he's surging, but he's kind of surging late. The only other thing I'll say about the Republican race is you've got the the regional split. You've got three candidates from Middle Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, has been really tough for Diane Black, is with three candidates in Middle Tennessee. It's hard for one candidate to surge in an area that you really need to. That's right. And so I think really the dynamic for me is less about television and more about the Grand Divisions, i.e. the name of the podcast. <laughs> that was an excellent plug. We appreciate that. <laughs> we no problem. We didn't tell her to do that. <laughs> I'm here for you. So, so you looking, will, I'll, I'll say, ahead, since ahead. I said, you know, what Diane Black's best ad is, I probably need to say, <laughs> say that Absolutely. Bill Lee's three, pol- or the three politicians ad he just came out with is probably, mm-hmm. I think, was his, is his best. Uh, Randy Boyd's, where he's kind of comparing himself to Trump, uh, but ends it with he just doesn't tweet as much, is probably his best ad. And then uh, Har- I would agree the Harwell, the, it's very, it's, uh, it's a critical ad. It's not a negative ad. It's a right. critical ad. Yeah. I think that was really well done. Yeah. I'll say about Beth Harwell, I feel like she kind of came out of Bell Mead with her Wimbledon whites on and she came into a cage match. And, you know, it, I respect her immensely for all of her accomplishments, but it just feels like she's never been in the mix. I've said before, I think if she runs in 2010, she stands a better chance than now. This is a, a Trump era, and I'm not sure that her tactics work in a Trump era. And maybe it's the same thing with with, with Fitzhugh, where that was a, we thought it was a really good ad, but maybe you run that a few months earlier, and I know mm-hmm. that that's playing off the infighting that's coming out now, but again, it seems like that's an ad. It's like, wow, that's, that's a really strong ad. Maybe a couple months earlier, that, that helps a bit. Again, the same thing with the medical marijuana position statements. Like, that's, that's great. Maybe a couple months earlier, maybe not. I don't know. Changing a little bit, Focus to, to look a little bit nationally and look at the impact of national politics on the race post primary. There's been a lot of talk of a blue wave, a blue wave, this national blue wave. It's a, it's a midterm election uh, against a first time Republican president. Kaylee, is it even possible to have a blue wave 
that can sweep in a Democrat into both the Senate and the House in Tennessee. I think all politics is local. I really think right now these races are about Tennessee, and that's where it's going to be fought out here. You know, whether you're talking about the Senate race, you know, the, the, the races here, and whether or not the candidates have enough money, whether they have enough support, what they've done here, what's going to happen to independence. I, I just feel like there's a lot of local factors here and where Democrats are struggling or where they don't have enough money in the bank, you know, they don't have the name recognition. I mean, there, there are just mechanics and local factors that really matter to races here. And, you know, if you have candidates that are running with $250,000 and it's a $3 million race, I don't care what kind of thing is happening in California or New York. It's not going to affect a House race here. At the same time, though, we're already hearing Phil Bredesen talk about Trump. I mean, he has ads talking about Trump. He's put out statements about what he thinks about Trump's stance on North Korea versus Trump's stance on, on tariffs. And I know that's a little bit different as a Senate race than, than, than governor. But, but Michael, maybe you can weigh in, too, in this idea that Republicans for a decade ran against Obama and Hillary Clinton. And that was a massive point of – I mean, we saw that in, like, House races, like yeah. state House races. They're not on the ballot that. this year, though. They're not there. Is that a concern for you where now that's not there, but also there is this – there's, there's Trump and that we could see Democrats at every level potentially try to try to run against him. Well, I think one of the biggest differences, though, is the state of the economy in America and Tennessee right now compared to 2010 when this red wave swept across Tennessee and, and most of America is that we have record low unemployment numbers across Tennessee. We're seeing you know historic lows and uh, national unemployment numbers. Consumer confidence is very high. So I think, you know, strategically speaking, Democrats have a much more difficult time to hit on these, you know, in 2010, as Republicans were talking about bailouts and uh, the, you know, stimulus package and health care, that uh, Democrats have to point to character flaws more than anything opposed mm -hmm. to saying, hey, look how bad these uh, uh, economic numbers are. So I think that makes it more difficult. And so then you have to get back to, you know, it's it's locality. And I think that's very true in middle America when you're voting for congressional federal candidates is this connection to their state, their hometown, their local area. It's not this national issue of where you kind of see a lot of the, the more outspoken members of Congress and, and Senate or um, if they're not in leadership, they're in California, New York, Florida. They're in states that, you know, they, the national issues seem to weigh far more on their races. As you talk to people in your respective parties, what are the issues that the average voter, the average person wants these gubernatorial candidates and Senate candidates to actually talk about and address? What are the top issues for, for your respective sides? I mean, is it health care? Is it the economy? Economy, jobs, education, health care. Yeah. Do you see these candidates actually, I mean, right now in the, the, the gubernatorial race, they're, they're not talking about issues. You know, they're talking well, about. they are, it's about immigration. Yeah, or, yeah. Or something like that. Well, that goes back to they generally agree on a lot of the, the, the same economic policies and, and education issues. It's, okay, how can I, I differentiate myself? And it's finding these differences in immigration, uh, which hasn't isn't, you know, such a clear cut party line policy across the Republican Party, across the state, across the country. So um, so that, that's where you get these. That's why there's this, this focus there. I think we get out of the primary and you'll see a more rich conversation about some of these issues. One honestly. would hope. I mean, I hope we're not talking about NFL kneeling in, in October. That has nothing to do with what the next governor has to do. It's not job. a bread and butter issue. Right? No, it's 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 a little it's a little bit of a distraction. But primaries lend themselves a little bit more to these kinds of mm -hmm. conversations. And I think the general will get us past 
past this, the, but the primary is always a little bit more of a red meat time. So what what sort of, especially in the Republican side, very contested still, what, what are some last-ditch efforts that could push somebody over the top? Is there like a, a campaign trick? Is it just the get-out-the-vote effort? Like, what's out there that's <laughs> it's like some crazy ad that they've been waiting till the very end to air? Like, what is it that could push somebody over the top? Or is there anything? I'm debating in my head whether I say it or not, but obviously, I guess like <laughs> a, a Trump, Trump endorsement. endorsement. Yeah. yeah, the biggest uh, thing. You know, that yeah. that would definitely, you know, we saw it happen in Georgia. Uh, yep. and, and, you know, I, I've, I saw some um, internal tracking numbers show how much of a shift yeah. that had. But uh, which same, was huge for, for Kemp, who for Kemp, It was very helpful. Won, yeah. But then at the same time, like, it did nothing in the Alabama That's Senate right. primary. That's right. Uh, so you got a question is like, you know, does the president actually do it? You know, who's advising him to say like, yeah, politically, yeah, this is a great move or, hey, stay out of it because we need to make sure that, you know, the which, Senate race. Which is the additional dynamic of Bill Haslam, who is the chair of the RGA, saying essentially, yeah, we don't necessarily want you to weigh in on, on the primary, well, right? That, like, but we don't have as flawed of a candidate here as they did in Alabama. Okay. Right. I mean, all all the Republican candidates, I think, are better than the situation in Alabama. And I, I read the Haslam comment was that he didn't necessarily want to have President Trump make an endorsement because perhaps he might have had a candidate that wouldn't have been the one that would have gotten endorsed. That's the way I read it. Now, I'm an outsider, but I had the feeling that he might have had a candidate that wouldn't have been the one that Trump would have chosen. And so that was he was trying to keep Trump out to keep it neutral. I'll say, you know, to defend Governor Haslam and and that story. um, You're you're referring to the New York Times story. The New York Times story. uh, And, you know, obviously I'm not in, you know, Governor or, you know, I shouldn't necessarily say obviously, but I'm not in Governor Haslam's (laughs) inner circle. I'm not in privy to RGA conversations, nor any conversations that is being had with President Trump. But from a outsider perspective on this or devil's advocate, I guess you could say, is that President Trump came to Tennessee once to say, hey, I need you all to get out and vote for Marsha Blackburn. Mm. And um, and then to say, well, I'm going to come into Tennessee and say, vote for this one candidate out of four, that we assume the, the winner is probably going to be around 30 35%. So now you're talking about a 65% of the Republican primary voters you've alienated or right. you've picked against their candidate. Right. And then he's supposed to come back again or, or throughout the, the fall say, hey, everyone, vote for Marsha Blackburn for United States Senate when you've kind of made him mad by picking against them. And also the difference between here and Georgia is there mm-hmm. are four Republicans in the ballot here. Georgia's race, there were two. So, I mean, it's a little bit easier for the president to select one. Um, for and those they, they that- did their best for Diane Black with Vice President Pence, right? Sure. I mean, they kind of did a soft endorsement. Pitch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't an all-out one, but uh, so we've got to move on. We want to move on to some predictions here. We're not going to ask you, Michael, about which candidate is going to win, but how how close is this going to be? Will the vote count still be going into Friday? Um, because it looks like, you know, things are, are very tight, neck and neck, with a lot of internal polls. And are you prepared if one candidate does not concede to another one? Well, I'll be honest. I hadn't thought about no one, someone not conceding. Um, I mean, okay. you know, potentially happen, right? Like it's it's it Trump brought it up, unlikely, <laughs> but maybe not, right? You know, I think you know, and credit goes to Trey Hargett and the Secretary of State's office. Is you know, we really have been exempt from a lot of issues over the last couple of elections where uh, we've had very close vote totals. Uh, you know, Williamson County, we had a commission race where it was decided by three votes. We've had county races across the state that have been very, very close, and we've never run into this issue of someone saying, "Well, I refuse to concede and demand a recount" or, or anything along those lines. 
so I think it will be close, though. Um, I can't imagine that we're going to have any sort of uh, problems where we're still counting things into Friday. So you, uh, you think it'll be decided Thursday night? Yeah, I think I think we'll know Thursday night. Uh, but that's not to say that, you know, we're not talking, you know, a two, three points between your top three mm. finishers. Uh, Kaylee, we don't anticipate a, a primary that's quite that close on the Democratic side. But if Carl Dean wins, as, as people do expect, do you expect it to be a landslide and... Do you anticipate that as soon as he wins, that he will try to start campaigning with Bredesen right away? Is that something that Bredesen and the Dean Camps would want to do? So I I don't anticipate a close race on the Democratic side. And I did post, because I do predictions on my Twitter feed, I did (laughs) post a prediction just because I... What was it? So I predicted Randy Boyd. And I I predicted it because of the structural reasons that I laid out Mm -hmm. on the the Grand Divisions. I said it would be close, and I I actually really like... Diane Black as a person. She's a great cook and has a fantastic kitchen. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'll do my little shout out there. But, uh, and I think there's a li- too late of a surge. Uh, but but I, I did it for the structural reasons that I mentioned. But I, I could be wrong. I mean, it's a prediction. You get well, sure. what you pay for sure. there. Um, I don't know if they'll um, necessarily like coordinate campaigns together on the, on the, you know, because they do have differences. Look, a rising tide will lift all boats, right? It'll help clean lists. It'll help, right? I mean, it will help to have two strong Democratic candidates for the first time in a very long time that are running statewide. And, I mean, it's like a lightning strike. No, I'm kidding. But, I mean, it is. (laughs) it will be great to have two uh, strong Democratic candidates that are out there. Well, and for Bredesen, who wants to keep this a Tennessee-centric race and not a national race, he's going to probably want to cling on to something that is a state thing. And that's a guy running for, for governor, right? Like that's a lot easier to make that argument that I'm trying to make this a Tennessee focus race than allowing the Governor Bredesen is not a clinger, but uh, I'll just say he has his own strategy. Hmm. I'm sure, I'm sure the mayor will have his own strategy. And insofar as the Venn diagram overlaps, I'm sure that's going to be useful to both of them. I mean, they're both kind of alpha people. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you know this already, but uh, that, that rising tide's going to help them both, right? Because it's been a long time. It feels like a long time since there've been two strong candidates statewide here. Everyone is very excited for Thursday. We're, we're excited to see what happens, excited to see where this goes in the general. Again, Michael Sullivan with the Tennessee Republican Party and Kaylee Kreider, former uh, advisor with Al Gore, who's currently leading her own consulting firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. It's fun. Pleasure. Hey, listeners, I'm Tennessee politics reporter Jordan Bowie, and this is Fact and Fact Check, a segment of the show where we offer both facts about Tennessee politics and check out questionable statements and figures tossed around in the political arena. Last week, we looked at candidate attack ads. This week, we look at the final tallies for absentee and early voting. The numbers show the practice is on the rise. About 543,000 people voted early in 2010 and about 564,000 in 2014. This year, 627,000 people voted early, an 11% increase. These numbers from the Secretary of State's office pertain to just the two weeks of early voting. That's our fact for this episode. Now on to our fact check. Throughout his campaign for the Republican gubernatorial nomination, Bill Lee has talked about his personal story and his role leading Lee Company. In his book, This Road I'm On, Lee said he positioned the company to weather the 2008 recession and that the company didn't have to shrink or lay off people. Fast forward to last week, and Lee, in response to questions about a lawsuit filed by a veteran who claimed wrongful termination, said the company lost work and had to let some workers go. 
We checked back with the Lee campaign on this apparent discrepancy, and campaign advisor Chris Walker said Lee had referenced no net layoffs in his book. That's our fact and fact check for this week. Check back on our next episode for another segment. Endorsements are a traditional role that uh, many organizations, including news organizations, play in elections. We've seen some endorsements in the gubernatorial race in the last few days and weeks in the, um, from, from newspapers around the state. On the Republican side of the Chattanooga Times Free Press, uh, they endorse Bill Lee. On the Democratic side, they endorse Craig Fitzhugh. Uh, we saw the Knoxville News Sentinel endorse Randy Boyd, uh, kind of the hometown, hometown guy. guy yeah. That's right. Uh, but there haven't been any other endorsements from the uh, USA Today Network papers. And so to kind of uh, explain that for us, we have David Plazas, the engagement editor uh, here at the, the Tennessean, uh, who kind of plays a role in, in the editorial board decisions at some of the other papers, just to uh, come on and, and talk to us a little bit about the decision that goes into uh, when to endorse and, and when not to endorse. David, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much, Dave and Joel. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah. So take us through the thought process. Some people see it and they're a little confused. Why is the Knoxville paper endorsing and, and not the other property? So uh, what's, what's the thought behind that? Sure. Well, we are the USA Today Network Tennessee that's made up of six papers. We're still independent community publications that need to respond to the needs of our communities there on the ground. So Nashville can't make decisions for Knoxville. We'll coordinate on a lot of coverage. We'll coordinate on forums and debates but we won't necessarily say you have to endorse such and such or you can't endorse. So the Tennessean and the Commercial Appeal independently decided not to endorse in the primary races for the gubernatorial election, uh, precisely because we think that the best service that we can give the public is the engagement aspect, forums, debates, op-eds, those kinds of things that will help inform the populace. And the reason for that is the research we found is that our readers want us to help them understand the issues and the candidates, but not necessarily tell them what to think. There are some exceptions, though, so it doesn't mean that we're stopping endorsements on hyper-local races, they're very important. And we also really want to do a good job of that. So for example, for this election cycle, we've honed in on two races, the vice mayoral race of Metro Nashville and Senate District 19, because essentially you have just Democrats in that race, and that's going to be decided effectively on August 2nd. And essentially in those races too, there, there tends to be, for whatever reason, a, a potentially less coverage or less available information than there is in a high-profile gubernatorial race. So it sounds like you're saying while you, you do endorse in those races and in, in other races, you feel like it's more of your role to help readers arrive at a decision as opposed to tell them what their decision should be. That's correct. And after August 2nd, we're going to evaluate every single race that's important to Middle Tennessee and decide which races do we really want to hone in on, which do we want to make the invitation to candidates to come in. So we just have not decided to give up endorsements. We actually did in 2016 for the congressional races and uh, most recently uh, in the uh, May 1st transit race and also several judicial races that were there. All that being said, uh, some people look at this maybe and say this is hearkening back to the 2016 presidential election mm-hmm. where uh, there was open criticism by e- other media and others uh, about the decision to not endorse in the presidential election. What do you say about that criticism? Is it in your mind unfair or? No, I mean, all criticism is fair, I think, and we accept that. I, I, I still um, go by the decision that we made to affirm the system. We are right now in an era where we have a president and others who are criticizing news outlets who are calling them fake news, enemies of the people. We believe in the system. The system is not rigged. The system has issues, of course. Unfortunately, the editorial board is made up of several people who have to come to consensus. We could not come to consensus. Am I happy about that? No. I wrote an op-ed in favor of Hillary Clinton, but we decided our approach was to have different voices talk about their cases for different candidates. And it's not always a very pretty process. And 
I frequently deal with criticism, and I'm happy to do so again. Just just for clarity point, too, Joel and I, the reporters, we, we play no role in the endorsements. Like, we might come over and ask David, hey, you're going to endorse? And he'll say, you'll find out. Like, it's not <laughs> like we aren't like, man, David, you should really endorse candidate X. Like, no. we, we tend to honestly find out with, with the rest of the readers what the endorsements are going to be or not going and to be. And in the same sense that David doesn't come over to us and say, hey, w- what are you working on? And give me the inside exactly. scoop. I mean, I think there is a good wall that we have established between the editorial side and and the news side of things. That, that's important, and I've seen you both get yelled at for even approaching me. So, uh, that's, um, but you know, the collaboration is really important. Uh, but it's more for information purposes. But obviously, you have no no role in endorsements, and and I don't talk about who we endorse until it has come out. The past Sunday of uh, uh, July 29th, the vice mayoral race endorsement will be out, and uh, the Senate District uh, 19 endorsement is out on Tuesday. Hundreds of thousands of people are expected to vote on Thursday. If you haven't made up your mind yet, there's a ton of information to help you at Tennessean.com and throughout the USA Today Network. Uh, we just unleashed a ton of new information, a, a final state of the race overview in a couple races, an article about where Republican gubernatorial candidates stand on LGBTQ issues. Some people like to base their votes on endorsements. Uh, we had something similar to an endorsement come out uh, late last week. Joel, tell us what happened. On Friday, Mike uh, Pence, the vice president of the United States, came out on Twitter and said uh, he was supporting Diane Black, essentially. Uh, the quote, uh, to be exact, is there are great candidates running, but Diane has been my friend for years. We served together in the House and she has my support. Somewhat short of a full on endorsement that uh, the vice president and even the president have given to other candidates, including David Kustoff, but uh, it's it's support nonetheless. And her campaign's going to say it's an endorsement. The, the people she's fighting against are not going to say it's endorsement. Just, uh, uh, you know, some, some of the hijinks that happen at the end of a campaign. It doesn't hurt her, though, at all. Certainly not. So uh, it's it's setting yourself up to fail to make predictions, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, Joel, let's start with the uh, Democratic side of the race. Um, it's, I think it feels like more of a question of how big Carl Dean's going to win as opposed to whether. I think that's accurate. As Kaylee had mentioned, you know, it, it really depends on is it going to be 20, 30, 40 percentage point margin that he wins by. Uh, one thing that we'll have to see is does Craig Fitzhugh immediately come out and endorse and back uh, Carl Dean? Uh, does he stay quiet for a couple of days? Uh, how late into the night will this go? I mean, is it a, a 7.30 uh, concession speech from Fitzhugh? We'll see on Thursday. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. It feels like we're going to know pretty quickly and that, that Carl Dean's going to march on to the, to the general. A little bit more difficult on the Republican side, the gubernatorial side. I think Joel and I have been hearing some, some rumblings about some what I would call a pretty major shift in like the de facto standings of the race leading up to the election day. Yeah, it appears that the winds have certainly shifted on the GOP side. I mean, three, four weeks ago, if you had asked many candidates, campaigns, uh, strategists, they were all saying either neck and neck, Diane Black, Randy Boyd. This point, from everybody I, I talked to, whether that's uh, Republican strategists outside of these these four campaigns, uh, state party officials, um, even people that have nothing to do with campaigns right now are saying it, it, it does appear to be that Bill Lee is in the lead, which, you know, uh, is somewhat shocking. Shocking to hear that. We never would have guessed that six months ago, and you never would have heard that. You know, there's an old campaign adage that it doesn't matter who's winning in April, it matters who's winning in August. And uh, that's kind of the, the tale for Diane Black's campaign, and to some degree, Randy Boyd's. You know, we talked about it with, with, with Kaylee and Michael. They kind of duked it out for a bit, and Bill Lee was able to step into the void. Beth Harwell hasn't really been able to do that. There was a, a poll, I guess you'd call it, that came out recently that showed her and Bill Lee kind of at the top of the race. I think everybody would be a little bit surprised if that's actually how it played out. But perhaps, broadly speaking, 
be more surprising to see candidates like Diane Black or Randy Boyd, who spent a ton of money uh, in, in this campaign. Either of them could come in third in this race, which is just really surprising. Yeah, it's a it's a shocking reality, but ultimately it all is going to come down to get out the vote effort. It really depends on whose campaign has the best uh, effort to get people to go out to the polls. Uh, you've got some some known people out there that have done these before, and that's Chip Saltzman with Randy Boyd's campaign, Chris Devaney with, with Bill Lee's campaign. Uh, they have run statewide campaigns before or, or been with the party. Uh, Diane Black's people, not so much. They, they're kind of new to this game, but they've, they've been advised by good people. Uh, same thing with Beth Harwell. She's got good advisors. So it really is going to come down to Thursdays, get people in vans, and send them out to the polls. That's right. The, the selection at this point with early voting done is all about getting the people that you know uh, are your supporters actually out to vote. And that's calling them, emailing them, driving them to the polls. So we'll see which candidate can do that. You guys can check in with us to see who won, how they won, and what it means for the general on Friday. We're going to have a special episode of the podcast analyzing everything you can uh, you can imagine uh, from the outcome of the race. Uh, we, we hope you, you tune in. We also hope that you rate us on iTunes or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Uh, that would that would really help us out. I think Joel was saying earlier that he listens on a, an 8-track or <laughs> or he has somebody dictate it to him. I'm not quite sure how he does it. But but anyway, we love your support. Uh, we, we appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to bringing you the, the final outcome on Friday morning. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.